Hello and welcome to Mysteries and Mimosas. My name is Max Sterling and I'm here with your co-host and my beautiful wife, Aria Sterling. Hi everyone. So today is part two of Kelsey Smith's episode. Last week we recorded part one, so if you haven't listened to that, please go back to last week's episode and listen before you continue on because today we are going to highlight the interview done with Kelsey's parents, Greg and Missy Smith. And just a quick recap on part one of this episode, uh, we were talking about Kelsey Smith. Kelsey had just graduated high school in Overland Park, Kansas, and was out shopping for a gift for her boyfriend for their six-month anniversary when she was abducted, sexually assaulted, and strangled. Today we're going to pick back up with that episode. This is actually going to be the interview that we did with Kelsey's parents, Greg and Missy. They're going to walk us through the days and hours leading up to Kelsey's disappearance, what it was like for them following her disappearance um, in the days that days after that, all through that criminal justice process with law enforcement and kind of how that impacted their family as a whole. Then they're going to talk to us about the Kelsey Smith Act and the work that they're doing to get that passed at a federal level and what you can do to help. And because it's December... And because we love Christmas so much, we bring to you tomorrow, we're releasing a bonus episode as well. So not only do you get to listen to the interview done with Missy and Greg, but you also get to enjoy a bonus episode, courtesy of Mysteries and Mimosas, mainly courtesy of Aria. It was her idea. That's true. Every once in a while, I have a good idea. Like the time you married me. Best idea ever. No? Okay. Really? Maybe. Name one better idea. You can't. Uh, See? You just can't. My mind Um, went blank. That's right. Yeah. Your mind was done, son. Okay. Is that going to be like a new thing for you? Maybe. This new quote? I I haven't decided. I don't know what that is. I've said it two times. I know. That's why I'm asking. Is it going to be like a new thing? I, I don't know about it. It's, you don't like it. I mean, well, it's, it's a too bad. Cringy as the kids would say. I'm not cringe. I'm far from cringe. People would call that cringe. No cap. Okay, now that. <laughs> yeah, that's cringe. It's cringe. Okay, enough of that. So. We started out the interview by asking Greg and Missy to tell us what kind of person Kelsey was. And here's what Missy had to say. So Kelsey had a unique position in our family. She was the youngest child, the middle child, and the oldest child. And I say that because um, she was the youngest child for six years until we had our daughter, Cody, And then um, we had our son, Zach. So Kelsey was the middle of five. So she was the middle child for a long time. And then her two older siblings um, moved away because they're older. There's a 13-year time or age span between our children. Um, So our oldest two, Stevie and Lindsay, moved out of the house. And Lindsay went off to college. So Kelsey became the oldest child for quite a few years. So she had quite the unique um, position in our family. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, and she, she really became, she was kind of like a caregiver 
she was 10 when our son Zach was born, and she would not let anyone take care of him except her. Aww. Like, she was the only one. And then um, when she was in high school, she would go and pick him up from school for me, and she would ask his teachers things like, how did he do today? How was his homework? How was his behavior? That sort of thing. So it was a very unique um, role that she played. Aww, so she kind of grew into like a mother role. Yeah. Very much Yeah. So. Our, our poor son had five mothers, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so do you, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what her future plans were? I, I know that she, I think that you had told me she was, you know, getting ready to attend college to become a veterinarian, right? Right. Yeah. She had enrolled um, at K-State where Lindsay, her older sister was. Um, and she was excited about that because both of them had been in marching band in high school, but because of the age difference, they had never marched together on the field. So this would have been the first time ever that they would have been performing together on the same football field at halftime. They both played clarinet. Oh, wow. um, so she was she was excited about that. But her boyfriend um, was going to KU, and we really, for a long time, didn't know where she was going to go to school. And high school senior night at the basketball game, um, they bring – all the seniors out to at halftime and they talk about real quickly where they're going to college and all that. And I didn't know until that night when they announced her um, and she had said that she was going to K-State. I thought she'd go to KU where John was, but she didn't. Oh, wow. So it was a Actually, surprise to what, you too. what happened is they, they announced her, Kelsey Smith, K-State, and Greg looked at her and said, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> So how far away would that school be from home? KU is in Lawrence, which is about a 30-minute drive from here. K-State is in Manhattan, which is about an hour and a half, two hours. Okay. Oh, so still relatively close to have her home. Mm-hmm. Nice. And did, did your other daughter go on to graduate and everything? Yeah, yes, Lindsay. our daughter Lindsay did graduate from K-State. Awesome. And what's Lindsay doing now? She, she is being is. a mom to four. Oh, yeah. nice. <laughs> wow. That's and awesome. she runs she runs her own little bakery business out of her house making cookies. Oh, cool. Um, which, I mean, she makes all kinds of shapes and sizes and decorates them and all that kind of stuff. And I spend a lot of time over there because I like cookies. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. awesome. She's busy this time of year, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> So Kelsey was with her boyfriend for going on six months at the time. I think everybody wants to know what was Kelsey going to target to purchase for her boyfriend for their six month anniversary? Oh, that's a missy thing. (laughs) So John's mom um, had accidentally thrown away the card that Kelsey had gotten John and it just sent him over the edge. So Kelsey was going to get like a scrapbooking box could keep all of the stuff in that she got him so that his mom wouldn't accidentally um, lose or toss one of the items that Kelsey had given him. Oh, that's cute. So when she called you... So it's like a keepsake box. Oh, I gotcha. So when she called you, Missy, what was it that she was having trouble finding? 
she was actually walking into the Target and she just wanted to get in, get the gift and get out because she they were going to dinner. So she called me and she said, hey, mom, I'm here to, at Target to get that box for John. And um, I said, OK, it's right down the aisle. You're going to find it on the end. And she said, mom, I'm not at that Target. I'm at the Target by the mall. And I said, oh, OK. So then I was explaining to her what department she could look in to find that item. Yeah, that that's crazy because every time I ever go to the store, I always have to call Aria to try to find out like you know where stuff is because I, I have no idea. I'm always lost. So I have to go to the store with Missy so that we can make sure that we only buy what's on the list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I know Kelsey was reported missing rather quickly, mostly because of your family rule to always communicate. But I understand that maybe Kelsey's boyfriend John had something to do with reporting her missing so quickly. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how and when Kelsey was reported missing? Uh, so John, I was out of town and John had come to our house. So he was here with Greg um, and Greg can tell you that part because like I said, I was out of town at the time. Yeah, um, I mean, we were all surprised that Kelsey wasn't there because John came to our house to pick her up and I mean, I knew they were going out and he knew they were going out and all that. She had gone out. Um, this was shortly after high school graduation, too. So she was still going to graduation parties and things like that. <clears throat> and she'd gone to a party and she came home um, to go to the store to get John's things. And then she left and then she came right back in about five minutes later she said i forgot the cd that i like listening to so she grabbed that and then she left and i said all right bye i love you see you in a bit and she took off and then she wasn't there when john came to pick her up so everybody was calling and texting and john was was doing the same and when we couldn't get a response john and Lindsay, uh, kelsey's older sister that was at k-state actually got in the car together and said, Hey, we're going to go drive out and see, you know, if we can find her car or whatever. Her car had broken down that same year the starter had gone out. And so they thought maybe there was car problems or that. So they went driving around. I had called my parents and said, Hey, Kelsey's overdue. We can't get a hold of her. They lived out that way. I said, would you mind driving by and seeing if you can see her car? And at some point in time, my parents came across her car across the street at the mall from the target store and Lindsay called as i recall anyway um to say hey dad um mimi and peppy my parents found kelsey's car at the mall and she's not there and john wants to look inside the car and everything in me just screamed no um and so i told her that in no uncertain terms i said i don't care if you have to f and tackle him don't let him inside the car. Um, and so right away I jumped to something bad had happened. Um, but we didn't know. I mean, we just didn't have any idea. But, but before that, when I was um, in Des Moines, Iowa, which is about three hours away from where we live, my friend's son was getting married. So I had spent the weekend there and I was on my way home 
And Lindsay called me and she said, Mom, have you heard from Kelsey? And I said, well, she's at Target. She went to get a gift from John. And um, she said, Mom, John's here and Kelsey's not answering her phone. And my immediate response was, tell your dad, call the police. Something's wrong. I remember, Greg, you you had mentioned when I saw you um, do your presentation that you kind of actually took the lead on contacting law enforcement and saying, hey, you know, the quicker that you interview me and Missy, the quicker you can actually find out what happened. Can you tell us a little bit yeah, about that? That was that was later on when 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 all of this was happening, when we didn't know where Kelsey was. I was calling area police departments. We have a bunch of little cities that just basically you drive from one end to the other and you don't even realize you've left one and you're in the next city. So I was calling dispatch centers and that and saying, hey, have you had any reports of this vehicle being in an accident, traffic ticket, you know, any kind of police contact? All these agencies are telling me no. And um, while I'm doing that, Lindsay and Lindsay and John are out uh, looking for the car. So when the car is finally located, um, that's when I called back to our main police department, Overland Park, and I said, hey, her car's been located. It's at the mall and she's not there. Uh, I'm on my way out. And they said, we're sending officers. And by that time, Missy was home. And so um, we head out to the car and and meet the meet the police out there when they get there. And it's at that time they processed her car. And then um, as they are towing it away, we said to them, we're going to meet you like you interview us now. You get it done so you can find out what um you know, what's happened to our child. And as you described me being on ring, which is probably true, uh, <laughs> as, we're, as we're sitting in the interrogation room waiting for the police to come in and, and talk with us, Greg says to me, you know, they're watching us right now. And I said, I don't give a shit. Like, I don't care. Get in here, get done so you can find our child. Right, right. So, I, I guess I do have a, a question about how quickly the police responded because just working in law enforcement for, you know, over 20 years now, I know that sometimes when missing persons, especially adults, you know, because Kelsey's 18 at the time, when, when those reports are made, sometimes they're like, well, you know, she, you know, she's an adult or he's an adult. Um, we have to give it a good amount of time before we generate this missing person report. And sometimes it's just laziness. Sometimes it's procedure. Did you, did you find any type of delay? Um, or did your law enforcement background and understanding and how you relayed the information to law enforcement at that time kind of help speed that up? I, I think, think there, there are two reasons why they took, um, in the beginning, took her being missing seriously. First, because Greg was a police officer. But the other was when the police got there, we had already been walking around and I looked at the um, first officer on the case. And I said to her, I have looked behind every bush and in every dumpster and I can't find my baby. And she said to us later, she knew at that moment, this is bad. So they, based on everything that was going on, you think police kind of just understood the gravity of the situation early on? Yeah, they, they Immediately. did. Immediately. They did a they did a great job as far as um, responding and all that and 
and part of it too, Overland Park, I mean, it's a bigger city. Um, I don't know, 180,000, something like that. Um, but it's, it's a bedroom community more or less. Um, and so, you know, the police tend to respond to everything because they got a call. Um, so I think that had something to do with it as well. I think also Kelsey's behavior, um, beforehand, like the next day we played a message for the police where Kelsey had called us to say, Hey, I'm just letting you guys know I'm stuck in traffic because of construction. So she was always one to let people know um, if she was running late. And also because her friends took it seriously immediately. I think that kind of um, kicked it up a notch for the police. You know, her friends, if they were going to be late, she would say to them, just call your parents. Yes, you're going to be in trouble, but not as much trouble if you call them. And I remember her one friend, um, Megan, they share a birthday. You could just hear the despair in Megan's voice because we got her voicemail on Kels, please, this isn't you. We know that you would let us know where you are. Please try to reach out to some of us. So I think it's worth mentioning then to anybody who would listen to, you know, anything that, you know, whether it's this podcast or, any messages that you have to provide in the future um, that it's important for families who might find themselves in that situation to kind of be able to have that open line of communication with law enforcement to relay those abnormalities in, in people's behavior and also for law enforcement officers to pay attention to those small details. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I did um, not that we had the problem here, but there were reports of it throughout the state that, like you were saying, some departments took their time on missing person cases or runaways and that kind of thing. And when I was in the state legislature, I actually passed a, a bill, a law, the Missing Person Act that we have in Kansas, which makes it extremely clear that there's no time limit um, when someone is missing. If someone's gone five minutes, you can call and make that report. There's no mandatory 24-hour waiting period or anything like that. There's actually federal law that covers that that says there is no waiting period. Um, and sometimes I'll bring that up in my trainings that I do across the country for law enforcement, and even law enforcement officers are surprised to find out that there is no, you know, there's no mandatory wait. That's great because, yeah, all too often, and I think it's just misunderstanding a lot of times. They even police officers think for some reason that there's this mandatory 24, 48 hour waiting period. And so, you know, those are the most crucial points in time, right? Like we want to try to figure out what's going on immediately. And sometimes there's just some kind of miscommunication. So the, the fact that you're getting that word out there or, you know, into state legislature and that federal law, that's, that's one step ahead. Yeah. I mean, that's, one of the things. It's like that show that's on TV, uh, uh, you know, the first 48, that, that first 48 hours is absolutely crucial. If, if mm -hmm. you haven't, if you haven't can come to your conclusion of what happened in 48 hours, it's probably not going to be good. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and one of the things we, we try to advocate for families is you are your child's or your family member's best advocate mm -hmm. in anything. You know them better than anyone. And, you know, just one of the things I did is I pushed Greg and I pushed the police hard to um, and the DA whenever it came to her case, because 
I knew her better than anyone and I wasn't giving up. Yeah. <clears throat> and good for you for, you know, having that mindset and being strong for Kelsey. Yeah, I would I would tell parents that find themselves in this situation or anybody that finds themselves with a loved one that's missing it, just like Missy said, you're their best advocate and and you're that you don't rely on the police to get the word out. You've got to get the word out. I mean, we Missy and I were on radio and TV almost immediately. We were calling radio stations. Uh, I mean, in the in the next morning, I was calling radio stations, country music stations, saying, "Can I have thirty seconds, please, on your radio station? My daughter's missing. I'd just like to get the information out." Were they pretty receptive to that? Yeah, they okay. they actually were. So, can, do you mind walking us through the time following the missing person report until when Kelsey was found? Kind of like, you know, what was your family going through? How were you leaning on each other for support? You know, things of that nature. Well, the first, the first 24, we didn't sleep at all. Um, she went missing that evening around seven, um, by what, about 10, was it honey that we were at the police station? Yeah. And so we went through the interview process there. They also brought John in Kelsey's boyfriend, um, interviewed him and they pushed him real hard because at first their thoughts were that, um, maybe something that happened between the two of them and, and all that Missy and I never did think that was the case. Um, but I mean, they got to do what they got to do to, to, to go through all the leads that they have. Yeah. Um, and so we, you know, we understood that, um, I, I mentioned in the presentation that you were at that, um, uh, for me, it was much easier to stay in cop mode. Um, think about this as just another investigation. What would I do? What, what are the next steps? What do we need to do? And I was always looking for ways to reinvent the story to make sure that the news stays in, stayed interested in it so that we could get it out there. And that really was for the first 24, 48 hours, that was my focus was getting in front of any news media that I could um, to, to just let people know that our daughter was missing because that's all she was, was missing. We had nothing in that first 48 hours that let us know that this was a kidnapping. Like Greg said, we were running all over the place to all of these different um, media stations and they would send a car for us. And it was just taking up way too much time. So finally we said, no, you just tell us where to be. We will be here. We had people in our home, in and out of our home. Um, and like he said, we didn't eat, we didn't sleep. You know, one of the things I remember is thinking, I can't eat because I don't know if she's eating. I can't sleep. I don't know if she's sleeping. And then after 24 hours and she's still not home, a friend came over and they gave us um, all a sleeping pill because they said, you can't be of help to her if you aren't if you don't get any sleep. And that was the only reason I went to sleep was because I knew in order to help her, I had to have some sleep. Yeah, you <clears throat> had to be able to wake up with have, with a clear mind. Yeah, right. right. I think we had um, our daughter, Cody, uh, who was 12 at the time. She, um, she was our caregiver. She would bring us a piece of toast and she'd say, Mom, you got to have a toast. So that, I mean, something like that is is all we could get down. And we knew we had to do that so that we could keep going to find her. 
So I, I remember when we were recording the podcast, um, Arya remembered saying, I, I, I wonder if Kelsey's killer was stalking Kelsey before even ever going into Target. Was that ever uh, found out? You know, was there any belief that he was looking for her particularly? Yeah, we don't know. Um, I mean, it's obvious he picked her up somewhere. Now, he was he was in that mall and Target vicinity for the majority of the day. But just on watching the, the video is Target. Kelsey's car comes into the parking lot. His truck comes in behind her. So he saw her somewhere um, while she was out doing all of her different things. But we don't know where that point was that he actually made that contact and followed her to Target. Because when she pulls in, she drives in the front toward you know the front side of the store where the parking lot is and she parks five spaces away from the front door and his truck instead he swerves right and goes completely behind the store and then comes back around to the front um my thinking is so he could scan the parking lot and see exactly where she parked uh and then he went and parked like two rows away from where she was and and then went into the store now, before that day, there's no evidence whatsoever that he had any connection with her. They even came to our home and took our computer and that to see. They took it to the computer forensics lab here in Kansas City to see if there was any connection. And they could not find any whatsoever. And when she spoke with you on that last phone call, Missy, did she say anything? Like she felt like somebody was following her or there's this guy or did she mention anything that seemed out of the ordinary? She, she did not. We we just talked about um, where is this box? Where can I find it? And she was, um, since it was their graduation and my dad had not come down to her party she was giving me a little bit of grief to give him in Des Moines um and then I said um bye baby see you when I get home she was only in target 11 minutes that's it yeah the 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 one thing that the police were concerned about investigators were concerned about um at that time MySpace was the big thing it Facebook hasn't really picked up and caught on yet but this guy had a MySpace page and one, he, he talks about how he likes scary, cheesy movies. And one of the movies he mentioned is Strangeland, um, which triggered some of the investigators because Strangeland is a movie about um, a guy that stalks a cop's wife or oh. cop, cop's daughter. Oh, wow. And and so they were they were wondering if there was some kind of connection there. But it doesn't I mean, I. I went back through all my records and everything. I don't have any contact with him as a law enforcement officer that I know of. And um, after Kelsey came into Target, I believe he follows her in and he's kind of at a distance on all the security cameras, kind of like stalking from a distance, if you will. Didn't didn't he mm-hmm. leave before she left? And didn't he move his yeah. truck too? He went, he went out. He goes, he came in the indoor and went out the indoor. Um, and then he goes back out in the parking lot. Our understanding is he went back to his truck to um, get his airsoft pistol. Oh, okay. Um, so when so when he confronted Kelsey, his truck never moved. But when he confronted Kelsey, he had this airsoft pistol, which if you've seen those, they look pretty realistic. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so and Kelsey, even though you know 
guns are involved in law enforcement and all that kind of stuff. She really didn't have that much experience with them other than to know, leave dad's guns alone. And I think even the most experienced person with firearms in a, in a situation where it's high stress and that's pointed at you and you, you feel as though you're in fear for your own you know personal safety, you're probably not going to be paying attention whether it's real or fake. Right, right. Well, and then just shortly after Kelsey was found, there was a lady in the mall who someone approached her with a gun and she wrecked her car because she remembered Kelsey. Yeah. After Kelsey went missing, uh, there was basically a carjacking in the parking lot and this lady took her car and revved it up and ran straight into a light post in the parking lot. Oh, wow. wow. Um, And then I remember you mentioned something about a waitress that recognize Kelsey's killer. Do you remember uh, what that was about? Yeah, there's um, in that whole mall complex, there was an on the border restaurant where he went in and ate that day um, and did a dine and dash. But while he was there, he was being really inappropriate with the waitress. Um, and then later as police came back and were canvassing everything over the next day or so, they, um, I, I believe that the restaurant called in and said, Hey, after his picture came out, they said, Hey, this guy was in our, was in our restaurant. And so they came and he had left. Um, I've heard two stories. One is he left a, a wallet there, a fake wallet. Um, and the other is he left his wallet, but one way or the other, they were able to put it together. Who had the wallet. There were also two other um, females that, had two other ladies, one at the middle school, which is right by the mall, um, that he had approached her in an inappropriate way. Um, And after Kelsey's incident, after Kelsey was killed, she called in. And then there was a third lady who called from there. There's like a River City Market outdoor market here in the Kansas City area. And this lady was attacked at her car and ended up needing surgery on her hand because of injuries. And she called in after seeing the killer's picture and said, um, hey, that's the guy that attacked me. She had reported it at the time, but because it was a stranger, that there was no one to arrest. She didn't know who it was. Um, but he learned from that crime because he approached the first lady when um, she was at her car and hadn't opened the door. And with Kelsey, he waited until Kelsey opened the door to attack her. Yeah. And that video of just the flash of him coming from the left of the screen to the right. I mean, it's super quick to where detectives missed it often until they slowed it down. Yeah. Slowed it down and blew it up um, was, was how they did it. They took the, they took the video back. I mean, they'd been watching it on this tiny little screen and, um, I mean, when you watch, watch that video in, in real time without any enhancements, you don't see anything. It looks like she got in the car and drove off. Um, but when they blew it up, uh, and got it up on that wall and, and saw it in as big as it was, you could see that flash. And that's the detectives talk about that as everybody just, just went silent and went, Oh my God, did you see that? So they they took us to where um, the command center was. And and I have to say that 
Overland Park Police Department did a fabulous job. They, this command center looked like something like America's Most Wanted. And I would encourage all police departments to do training on something like this situation because you never know when something like this could happen. And these guys were able to solve Kelsey's case in four days. Like, that's... They, they are fabulous. Um, so I know that um, with the you know media coverage and, and even some of the radio stations that you you know you talk to with such a big public awareness, I, I think that a lot of that had to do with really cracking this case open. Yeah, were- yeah, it was huge. They, I mean, at the very beginning, that that first twenty four hours, you know, it happened at night, and this was a Saturday night up through into Sunday morning. Um, so there wasn't a whole lot of media coverage yet at the time, but once the media coverage started picking up, um, once they got his picture out, uh, the tips hotline exploded. I mean, they had so many calls that the tips hotline actually went down because they couldn't handle the volume of calls that were coming. I know a lot of jurisdictions, and if they don't have it, they should have the, um, child abduction response teams, the cart teams. Um, is there anything like that in Kelsey's jurisdiction? Um, and yep. if so, do, do you do anything working with cart teams? No, I wish I wish we had had a cart team. Um, it's something that I have been advocating for, for for quite a while. At one point, we had a statewide cart team um, in Kansas, but it was, I mean, it was statewide. So it was not, you know, it wasn't localized to a specific jurisdiction or a county or anything like that. Now, we did have, uh, well, who all was it that contacted you, honey? Team Adam? Yeah. Well, actually, um, the Hope Center. So, Hope Center is part of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And what they will do is assign a parent to you to help you through the process that has a similar case as yours. Like, we had an adult child. So they assigned me someone named Vicki Kelly who had an adult child. Um, and that is one of the things that, um, one of the good things for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And I will leave it at that. Okay. Um, so, I'm not a big fan of theirs. Okay. <laughs> um, what recommendations do you have for law enforcement and victim advocates working with families in similar situations? Uh, what did you find most helpful and what should be avoided? Uh, I mean, the big thing is that the the investigators on the case need to focus on the case. Um, and, and that needs to be their, you know, their number one priority. The victim advocate, if there is one, um, you know, needs to be with the family to, especially if it's a, you know, we, we were fortunate in that we understood police procedure, but most families do not. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and having somebody there that can explain to them, this is why this is happening. This is why this, this is why they did this um, is, I think is critical because you end up with parents that have questions. Their first call is going to be to the investigator and the investigators trying to solve the case. Um, and at times that conversation may not go well because the detective is busy. He's trying to solve the case. Um, he, he, he or she doesn't really have time. They don't have time to do the, the, 
for lack of a better term, the touchy-feely stuff. So you need somebody that's there that can relate that information to the family and then and then stand for questions. You, you absolutely need to have a liaison for the family. Like Greg said, we understood the procedure, so we understood why, what was happening. Others do not. Right. And one of the things we've heard is, you know, there was way too much. The, the police weren't touchy-feely. And we understood police couldn't be because they couldn't do their job. So you've got to have the liaison that can be that touchy-feely person for the family that shows that, yes, they care. But um, it keeps the police out of there because police... It, you know, we've talked to families afterwards and we said, if the police is touchy-feely, they can't do their job. It, they will get all wrapped up in the emotions and you want them to be able to do, it, to find who did this to your child. Right. And I can speak firsthand just doing um, special victims unit investigations that it is extremely easy to get emotionally wrapped up with your victims and the victim's family. And um, thankfully, I've never gotten so emotionally involved that it, it has uh, distracted me from, you know, focusing on the investigation and doing what I need to do. But even, even as a seasoned detective, it is super hard to remember to include my victim advocates to take that role on because I feel like I need to do everything all the time. Yeah, yeah, yep. sure. And, and, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, the families. A lot of times the only contact point the family have it has if there isn't a liaison is that business card that the investigator handed them. And so every time they have a question, that's who they're going to be calling. And, you know, we hear from these families, I called and he was short or, you know, they didn't have time to talk to me or, you know, they said they were busy. And then the family gets upset because they think the police don't care about them. And I try to explain it's because they care about your right, person, right. your your loved one. They're trying to find them and that's what they're focused on. <laughs> The other thing I would say is after a case like this, there absolutely needs to be a debriefing for everyone involved. It seemed like most of those in her case had a daughter her age. Now imagine, I mean, that's enough to go. Even the um, the funeral home director, her name was Gina. She had a daughter Kelsey's age. And when we went and talked to the chief of police, he said to us, well, we don't need a debriefing. They'll know. No, they do need a debriefing. And I would say, especially when you've got a major case, but even in some of the small ones, you definitely need to have a debriefing for those officers. I appreciate you saying that. Um, just in a law enforcement family, I think people don't understand. That's so important because those law enforcement officers carry that with them. That comes home with them, and the whole family is involved in that because that, that's part of who that person is now. That's part of that law enforcement officer, and they carry with that with them always. So it's so important to have that debriefing, not only for them, but their whole family, really. Yeah, that's, I mean, with the, the agency I'm with now, the sheriff's office I'm with now, um, you know, I volunteered and, and went through the process to, to be on our peer support team and went through all that training and stuff. So I've done some of those debriefings and we do since we're a county agency. A lot of times we'll do debriefings for the cities um, because they may not have those resources. And so it, it makes a huge difference to be able to let them, you know, get together and decompress and talk and go through what happened. Yeah. So because of this case, we now have the. And thanks to you entirely, we have the Kelsey Smith Act. 
can you share with us the work that you've done to get the Kelsey Smith Act passed um, and which states it's enacted? Sure. So that's me, that honoring us. Um, <laughs> that, it, it really is. So after um, everything with Kelsey and I found out that there was a subpoena issued and that, and I'm, I'm looking at Craig and I'm like, what do you mean they wouldn't release her cell phone information? This just as the wife of a police officer, Okay, I get you're not going to give me the information as I'm talking to you on the phone that night. That pissed me off because it was in my name. Give me the information. Don't just tell me, well, we can up your coverage. That's what they kept telling me. So afterwards, Greg and I sat down and I talked with Mark Lunsford in Florida, whose daughter is Jessica, who was killed. And he said to me, Mrs. Smith, you are going to find where this system failed your daughter and that's where your focus will be. And I'm looking at, no, the police did everything right. They did a good job. And he said, I'm telling you, you will find it. And that's when, you know, I was looking at Verizon wouldn't give us where her cell phone was. And once the FBI was able to walk them through, here's what we're asking for. And they said, oh yeah, we can do that. She was found in 45 minutes. Now, it would not have saved her life had that information been released immediately, but it is saving lives now. And I went to um, some state legislators and I said, okay, we need to change this law. Because as I said to Greg, it either takes lawsuits or legislation to make big corporations act. And um, Verizon wasn't listening to us. We had a meeting with them. Um, it was the president of Verizon and what turned out to be three lawyers. And I said to them, you need to find what broke that night because you failed Kelsey and you failed us as a family. And what the one lawyer said to me was, Mrs. Smith, you didn't use um, the correct terminology. You told you asked us to ping her phone. And I was like, whoa, my two-year-old knows what a ping is. And what I said to her, and excuse my language to all of your listeners, is don't make a family try to figure out what is the fucking magic word to get you off your ass to help them find their child. I told you my daughter was missing. So we went to um, now State Senator Rob Olson and said, we need when someone is missing for a cell phone provider to have to release that information. And now in 30 states, if someone goes missing or their life is at risk or there's great bodily harm, a cell phone provider does not have the option. They have to release where a cell phone location is. And, it, and it's super helpful for law enforcement. And, you know, most of the time when I've seen it used, you know, it's a good resolution and the person's safe and it was all for naught. But it's those cases where it's not all for naught where it does help. And it, and I've seen it work where we've, we've had suicidal people or people that are, you know, kidnapped or whatever. And just the matter of minutes of pinging um, from our dispatch center to just locate where that person is, has saved lives. And I never knew that it's the work that you've done in order to make that happen. So, you know, thanks to you for everything that you do. I have to say, um, it's making me tear up because, um, because our kid isn't here, there are many more lives that are saved, and that would be her legacy. Kelsey is saving lives, right? Hundred percent, absolutely. 
And um, unfortunately, I know that the law has not been passed federally. Um, and, and I understand that you've kind of experienced some of those roadblocks getting that uh, Kelsey's Act passed federally. What What's the holdup with that at the federal level? What's going on there? The ACLU and the far right, none of them want the federal government to have access to your information. That's what it is. There is, I mean, over time, um, it, with as technology advances and things change, um, there has come a uh, theory, I guess, for lack of a better word, and um, both political perspectives have adopted this for different reasons, but they don't want law enforcement to be able to access information about people. Um, Jim Jordan, uh, who is chair of the House Judiciary Committee and is, is a conservative right person, um, has a bill out there that's called the Fourth Amendment is not for sale, which would restrict law enforcement from even be able, being able to use uh, commercial databases to collect information, which, I mean, you know, as an investigator, we use those to be able to put together information so we can get probable cause. <laughs> and and they don't, you know, they don't want us to be able to access like Nexus Lexus or things like that, that, you know, you can pay for to get information on people, you know, um, without a warrant. That's That's how extreme that they're going. Uh, and because of this whole privacy push, which uh, from the political right, the, the thing is, um, you know, corporate America, government and that, you know, they're going to they're going to find out about you. They're going to track you, yada, yada, yada. And then you've got the political left, ACLU and those who are saying, you know, this is a, this is a violation of rights. You're violating a person's Fourth Amendment by getting this information. And when you go through the case law the federal case law on that there are there are supreme court cases that are on point that specifically point out that location information is not necessarily um something that's covered by the fourth amendment it's not a search to to find out where somebody is especially when they're in a situation where law enforcement doesn't know where they are and believes that they're at risk of death or serious bodily harm so i i, I would just like to clarify that the kelsey smith act is that exigent circumstance it is it allows law enforcement to access the location only no text messages no calls no pictures nothing like that just where is the device um and it is that exigent circumstance that even the u.s supreme court has said is constitutional right and and it's not like you know law enforcement is going to be using it as a nefarious means to stalk people i mean the, you have to have a legitimate reason to be asking for location data and typically that's some kind of generated call for service that's attached to a case number that's generated something along those lines where a dispatcher's not exactly, going to yeah. just say oh okay uh, officer you know joe smith is wanting to know the location data of this person so i'm just going to give it to him it's not that easy yeah no exactly and that's I mean, that's the that's the beauty of the Kelsey Smith Act that's spelled out in the statute that, um, you know, what the what the requirements are. Agencies in the states that have the Kelsey Smith Act have policies and protocols in place. Um, I mean, we have our model policy that we put out for law enforcement here at 
uh, at the Kelsey Smith Foundation, we even recommend that there is a um, provision in your policy where the supervisor at your dispatch center can, if when an officer makes that request, says, here's the situation and, and we need this information, that that dispatcher supervisor can say no this doesn't this doesn't meet those requirements we're not doing so a little bit of a check so and balance. Check. Yeah. yeah and they're there they're in place in fact yeah. we can't find a single state of the 30 states that have the kelsey smith act we cannot find a single state where it's been abused the other thing i would say is that the kelsey smith act also makes it more restrictive because in the 20 states that don't have it, they fall under federal law. And federal law says that any government entity, the Kelsey can ask for that information. The Kelsey Smith Act says law enforcement. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the big thing is the federal law says that these providers may release that information at their discretion, whereas the state laws say that it's not up to your discretion anymore when law enforcement as these conditions, you have to tell them where that device is. And, and so is there anything that people can do to get involved to help get that passed at a federal level? Well, it's not been drafted yet. So now we're back to finding a federal sponsor and it's contacting your federal legislative members, whether it's your senator or representative and saying, okay, we need this law and we need it passed and here's why. Gotcha. Um, okay, so I know that uh, Missy and Greg, you both have talked to homicide survivors and used your role and experience, Greg, as a police officer and Missy as a police officer's wife to help them understand and and uh, navigate that investigative process. Um, for both of you, can you tell us how your law enforcement background helped you through everything and kind of how is that going to help other people? Well, I well, think for... as the wife of a police officer, even though... I had never been um, on the investigative side. When they were asking those questions, I knew the why. I knew we had to get moving immediately because you know that time is of the essence. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, being in the profession and, and, you know, knowing the ins and outs of these types of investigations and that, that for me, that was, that was my, uh, support, I guess, while all this was going on. Um, I mean, I was, I was trying to stay focused more as an investigator than as her father, because for all the reasons that we talked about, the emotions come into play and then you, you can't do anything. Um, and, and I'm not asking families that are in this situation to do that, um, because it's almost impossible. Um, but I would, I would just say to families that, to understand that, you know, officers investigators are trained for this kind of thing this is what they do and while they may not have to do it very often you want them to be able to perform at their maximum efficiency the other thing i would say is um this is kind of a plug for the cart team and to be honest our friend derek um, van lucian we've gotten to know him afterwards as like the main trainer for the child abductive response team training um I would say definitely have a CART team in place. Practice, 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 just like a police officer practices using his weapon. 
you if you have all of these things in place, then it's just like second nature and you just know, okay, we got to do this. We got to do this. We got to do this. It's not a matter of pulling everyone together, trying to figure out what do we do next? Right. Well, thank you for that. And is there any last piece of advice that either of you have for anybody listening who might find themselves in a similar situations that you found yourself in? My, my biggest thing is, is you, you have to be that advocate for your child. You have to be, you've got to be the one that's making those contacts to, to media, especially to, to get the word out. Um, it doesn't make any difference what your station is in life or anything like that. Hit those media places up, let them know what's going on and just don't stop. I mean, if, if nothing else, eventually they're going to be like, Oh my God, put them on the air for 30 minutes, 30 seconds. So they'll shut up. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And Missy, do you have anything? I was just going to say, you are your child's best advocate. Like Greg may have done the law enforcement side, but on the other end, I was the mom and I was pushing. I think, um, you know, he's talked about the fact that I'm, I'm in the background asking him, where's the FBI? Like the FBI is the one that does missing persons. Why aren't, the police calling the FBI and finally he called the police and said you know bring in the FBI and later we learned <laughs> the special agent in Kelsey's case was special agent Mike Boiler um he's passed away now but Mike told us later his mom is calling him from Maryland asking him why aren't you involved in this case you're the FBI you're supposed to be involved so I guess moms know the FBI is supposed to be involved in this missing person's case. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for helping and supporting us. We really hope our show reaches enough people to bring awareness to some of these unsolved cases. And we hope it helps people understand the impact that these cases have on the victims' families, law enforcement, and everyone that's involved. Thank, well, thank you, you for having us. And um, yep. If ever you guys have a case where you think we can be of assistance in helping a family, please feel free to reach out to us. Any law enforcement across the nation, if you feel like Greg or I can help, we are more than happy to um, be that liaison for you. Thank you so much. That We, we really appreciate that. And, and we do have um, Kelsey's Army webpage linked on our mysteriesandmimosas.net webpage if if you need that help uh greg and missy you, you guys are wonderful um i just have to say you know before we end the interview uh, missy I, you know i joke that you're on you're a very strong-willed person i do appreciate that and just from a law enforcement perspective from uh dealing with victims as strong-willed as you i'm gonna tell you right now it, it keeps me on point and it wants me to do uh 110 when i do my job um, because I know I have somebody there that I don't want to let down. So thank you for that. And, and Greg, thank you for continuing to advocate for Kelsey, even to this day, and for all those people that, um, you know, are going to be affected by Kelsey's loss. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for being willing to share your story. I know that's going back to the most painful time in both of your lives, but you're willing to share that with others in order to help other families. And we couldn't be more appreciative of that. Well, thank you. Yeah, we appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening to part two of Kelsey Smith's episode. You can head over to kelseysarmy.org. There you can donate to Greg and Missy's efforts to get Kelsey's act passed in all 50 states. 
This fund also allows Greg and Missy to travel the nation, providing crucial training to law enforcement officers. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Mysteries and Mimosas Podcast. And join us tomorrow for our bonus episode. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.